This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. Lovely to have your company and we have a busy hour for you. Uh, we've got The Pick, our April edition of The Pick, to, what to, to watch, read and see, some lovely suggestions. And uh, also we're going to look at the crown of thorn starfish, a possible predator might have been found for it on the, the Gold Coast. And look, we've just had some very interesting breaking news announced to us by Max Utrich, who's, you know, we interviewed recently, used to be a, a head of news at the ABC. He has texted to say that the wreck of the Montevideo Maru has been found on the seabed 4,200 metres off the Philippines. That was that uh, dreadful story that uh, uh, the ship that sank with a 1,000 Australian men and boys in 1942. It was Australia's greatest maritime disaster and most enduring mystery. And I think there's going to be quite a f- uh, bit of fuss made of this um, uh, from the Prime Minister down coming out during the morning. Now, we, we may even be able to talk to Max Utrich a little bit later because we're going to be discussing veterans, um, uh, given that Amzac Day is on approach, but I thought you might be really quite interested in hearing that. I'm hoping to hear a little bit more later. Now, if you do follow developments and issues in the higher education sector, as we certainly do here on Saturday Extra, you may remember that back in November, the Albanese government launched the Australian Universities Accord. It was a plan to massively reform the university system and create a visionary plan for the future. And that was delivered by the Education Minister, Jason Clare, who's been pretty busy in his portfolio, it must be said. Uh, It involves a 12-month review of the sector, which is being led by Professor Mary O'Kane. The review called for shareholders to make submissions of which there were hundreds and it closed last week. Today we're examining the bold submission put forward by the group of eight universities which comprises Australia's leading research-intensive higher education institutions, that's University of Melbourne, the ANU, the University of Sydney, of Queensland, of Western Australia, of Adelaide, Monash and UNSW in Sydney. Uh, to find out more, I'm joined by the uh, Chief Executive Officer Vicky Thompson from Adelaide. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Geraldine. Good to be with you. Um, Vicky, this is certainly uh, an idea to change the discussion, I must say. Um, Could you explain the new systems approach the group is recommending and how it would be different to uh, what we currently have? So the government really did issue us a grand challenge, if you like. And if you think about the reforms of the university sector over decades past, they've all been couched in the context of nation building. So if you think about the creation of colleges of advanced education by Menzies, uh, the expansion of participation through the Whitlam, uh, Dawkins and Bradley reforms, they've all been very big. And this is this is our opportunity, uh, if we take government at their word, to go bold. So that's what we've done. And the GO8 approach, as you rightly said, our focus is very much around research. That what is what binds us, is to say, well, the system as it currently is, is very clunky. It doesn't allow for differentiation in the system. We have, you know, federally, uh, federal and state-led, so we are as universities funded by the federal government, uh, regulated through a, a regulatory body, which is federal, but we are under state legislation. We have a vocational education system, which is covered through the state governments and state legislation. So what if we just redrew and had a blank slate? 
What we are proposing for further investigation is what we're characterising as a seamless tertiary or post-secondary education system where you had one system um, across sort of government, if you like, uh, but you have a group of universities which are uh, almost like a reframed federal-state relations where you'd have federally funded research-intensive universities and then you'd have other universities which can focus on their particular missions funded appropriately through state legislation. So is this a we, sort of another way of teaching universities versus research universities? No, not really. And and that is always where we end up because we're looking at it in the current context. If we suddenly did that now, that is where we would end up and that is not appropriate. We have 40 universities in this country. Most all of us are very comprehensive. Uh, the fact is that the research is concentrated in a group of universities, the group of eight, uh, but that's not to say obviously it happens across all universities because we actually have to do research under the legislation to be a university and we're certainly not suggesting that that changes. But what we don't have is a differentiated system so that it allows kinds of institutions to pursue their specific missions and be resourced. So if you look at, for example, the US, the US has a, a, a system where they have doctorate granting universities, master's colleges, mm. baccalaureate colleges, etc. There are about 400 doctorate granting institutions which carry out teaching and research. And I guess that would be the closest um, sort of corresponding to what we have here in Australia. Similarly, Germany has a differentiated higher education system. We are very, uh, we're very much the same across the sector. So that doesn't allow for differentiation or specialisation. And if you have specialist universities, so you have federally funded research universities, and it could be, you know, it could be a dozen universities. I'm, I, I, that, that's the jury's out on what that would be and what metrics you would use. Um, you can then concentrate on excellence where you excel. So whether it's undergraduate teaching, disciplinary specialisation or research programs. Yeah, look, uh, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I've been hearing this for years from universities mm. about the need to differentiate. What also struck me was what you were saying about research, that in the group of eight undertake about 70% of, of, I think you said, of the university research, mm. but they're falling short on funding of research. They receive $2.5 billion from the government, but they spend $7.7 billion, mm. and you have to make up the, the gap through usually international fees. Now, and that was what was so starkly revealed during COVID when the when the international students exited. So you're saying there's a 45% loss on government-funded research and this can't go on. Now, that's obviously a key part of, of what you're calling for too, isn't it? That is absolutely right, Geraldine. Um, we, we cannot continue to rely on cross-subsidisation as a sector. And at some level, every university does rely on cross-subsidisation, but because the Group of Eight undertakes, as you said, seven point or spends $7.7 billion or 20% of Australia's total national investment in R&D and 70% of the university-based R&D, the significant proportion of our R&D in this country is funded by teaching revenue, and that is largely international education revenue. And so what you have potentially are perverse outcomes in terms of international education recruitment. We have reliance and we've seen that through um, COVID where, you know, we had to, we, we well, I guess the Band-Aid was ripped off in terms of that reliance. We didn't really talk a lot about this cross-subsidisation in the way we did until it was exposed in the way it was throughout the COVID period. 
But I think shining a light on it has been a very positive thing and it's allowed us to actually look at what do we want our system to be. We do want a healthy international education sector, so let's be very clear about that. But we want it for the right reasons. We don't want it because it should fund our national research effort. I think there's actually a question about the morality of funding our research largely on the back of international student fee income. So is this the, the crisis other, we had to have? Is that is that your implication? Well, I mean, it's a crisis we would rather not have had, of course. Um, and I have to say, I've been around this sector for two decades now, so and we've been talking about the distorted funding model of the university system, which there's been a slow creep towards increased funding. Uh, universities have increased their own funding of um, of higher education, while at the same time business investment in R&D has decreased and government investment has decreased. So this is not so, – so what we're saying through the Accord process is let's move away from, well, government should give us more money or business should do more, universities, and let's actually look at if we had a system in place which what would encourage business, more you know, investment from business, would encourage universities to really follow their missions. For us, it's around our research and education and would encourage greater investment from government, what would that need to be? And what we've suggested is looking at it from a systems approach. Yes. I mean, you're calling, uh, to get to blunt uh, figures, uh, you're calling on the government to increase investment in research from 1.8% of GDP, where it currently sits, to 3%, which is the target recommended by the group of eight, which is doubling, you know. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of people calling for that at the moment. Um, And... And you're also calling for this national research strategy. Do you think that will draw business in? Because the private-public partnership issue is clearly not being developed well enough by the sound of you. So, again, you've got to reframe your whole language. And universities haven't exactly been um, sort of aligning themselves to people who sign cheques because they seem to have been rather profligate, particularly with their own salaries. I mean, that so is sure part I of stack. Actually... I know you, <laughs> yeah, it, you don't I'm, like hearing I'm, I'm that. I'm not but... sure I would. Well, it's not that I don't like hearing it. I'm just not sure I would draw that thread. So let's just step through that. So currently we have 1.8% investment in research. OECD average is 2.7. The goal is 3%. Now, the government has actually said, the Treasurer has said this, the Education Minister has said this, and the Industry Minister have said this, that we do need to get to 3% of GDP expenditure on R&D. And that's a combined effort of business, industry and government. There's not a time frame for that. Uh, and there's not really a runway, if you like. But but what we're proposing, what, what, what we're suggesting is this is a way to get to that. Business investment in R&D, I think, has declined for a lot of reasons. I don't think you'd align it directly to university behaviour. Um, what I would probably suggest is that Part of the challenge for us in Australia particularly is that we have a very large, small, medium business base. We don't have the big industry base of, say, the UK or the US, where we are quite an anomaly in Australia where the bulk of the research is, this particular research is undertaken in our university sector in collaboration with industry. Right. Whereas in those countries which have a larger industry base, of course, they have a greater capacity to do that research. So I think that you need to look at what is our industry base, what are the the barriers for industry, 
I do agree with you that uh, we have over many years spoken different languages um, with business and with universities and there is an opportunity and more than an opportunity, we have to get on the same page with industry. The other aspect that I think is really important not to ignore is Research investment by industry is usually for the outcome at the end of the pipeline. What is really important is investment in basic research, and that is the domain of universities and the domain of the group of aid in particular in this country. We cannot let basic research be underfunded because you won't then get bold, sort of, you know, crudely saying the widgets and gadgets at the end that business and industry are wanting to invest in. So I think there is a pipeline here without apportioning blame on anybody and an opportunity through the accord process to say, let's look at what is the funding model for our universities? What are the incentives for business and industry? And a broad one is to get us up beyond that um, OECD average of 3% over a period of time. All right. Well, I know you're off to meet a whole lot of um, big university people as well. So, look, thank you very much indeed. We'll watch with interest. Thanks, Geraldine. Good to speak to you. Uh, Vicky Thompson, who's CEO of the uh, the uh, Group of Eight, um, and uh, we'll follow that story with a great deal of interest. And very shortly, we're able to speak to Max Utrich uh, on the line from the Philippines. <laughs> Yes, as I mentioned earlier, Max Utrich, who was on the program um, just uh, a couple of weeks back uh, with his work in Papua New Guinea, has phoned in to say that a, a major finding has occurred in the Philippines. The wreck of the Montevideo Maru has been found. There's been a great search for many, many years on the seabed of the Philippines, and I'm able to actually get to talk to him. <laughs> Hello, Max Utrich. Good morning, Geraldine. Where are you exactly? I'm uh, somewhere off the coast of Luzon um, in the Philippines on a search ship called the Fugro Equator. Um, and this is the ship that has, uh, from which we've just found this uh, uh, historic wreck of the Montevideo Maru. Now, just give us very briefly the background, please, to why this is so important that we've found it. Uh, more Australians died on this ship on July the 1st, 1942, than twice as many as the entire Vietnam War. 979 Australian troops and civilians, men and boys, um, perished when this uh, ship was sunk, unfortunately, by an American submarine by mistake during World War II. Goodness me. Uh, And people have been searching for it for years, I take it? It has been the enduring mystery of, of Australian maritime history. It is our greatest maritime disaster. Um, uh, there has been um, uh, 80 years, nearly nearly 81 years, where you know people have wondered what has happened, what where's what, what's the last resting place of these people, uh, these men and boys who were being transported by the Montevideo Maru from the town of Rabaul, which was then the capital of Australian-mandated New Guinea. So it was part of the Australian Territory. And these were prisoner of, prisoners of war, the eight, 979 troops and over 200 civilians who were trapped in Rabaul when the Japanese invaded in early 1942. And they were being taken to China to work as slave labour in a, in a mine. And, and unfortunately, um, the ship was not identified properly by the American submarine, the USS Sturgeon, which sunk um, the Montevideo Maru on that awful, tra- you know, tragic mm-hmm. night um, 80, 80 years ago. And why is it found now? 
Well, there's been a group of us, and I'm in a team uh, headed by John Mullen of Silent World Foundation, which um, uh, spends a lot of time uh, seeking historic wrecks. A few years ago, you may remember, uh, Silent World found the missing AE-1 submarine off of Rabaul, um, which was sunk in 1914 during the First World War, and um, they found that. And, and John Mullen, uh, who also is the chairman of Telstra, um, uh, is, this is his uh, obsession. And, um, and, and he, has, he, with the Australian uh, Defence Department, has funded um, this search. My goodness. And uh, I've, been in a, I've been in a team with John for five years preparing for this moment. Oh, Max, that's quite something. That must be really... All right. Well, look, thank you so much for letting us know. And no doubt we'll hear quite a lot of it more through the morning. Uh, but I'm um, sure. well done. Thanks, Geraldine. All the best. Max Utrich uh, on board one of the boats uh, adjacent to finding this major discovery of the Montevideo Maru. Um, and how appropriate, given that it's Anzac's Day on Tuesday, which we're going to discuss the health of veterans coming up next. Yes, it's Anzac Day on Tuesday, a highly symbolic time in our culture. Time to remember people's commitment to a big cause, that of defending Australia, and of course increasingly other cultures' defenders also march. What of those veterans who won't be there? Because they've very sadly taken their own lives, or they've self-harmed, or they're simply too disturbed to acknowledge their time in the forces. A Royal Commission's underway, as you probably know, to examine why the rates of distress remain high. A fortnight ago, the Commissioner Nick Caldas publicly reminded people they had till October the 13th to make a submission. Now, we're learning quite a lot more, though, already about the particular subset of men especially who are most at risk, and it's a little bit surprising. I welcome Patrick Lindsay now to the program to discuss the complications of life off the battlefield as such. He's reported on military men and women for oh, nearly three decades now, and his latest work just published is The Home Front. Patrick, welcome. G'day, Geraldine. How are you? Uh, good, good. Um, now, there's a lot to cover in this issue, as you know, and your book includes a lot of history of veterans' post-war experiences going a long way back. I wonder if today we could wrench the focus back to some of the surprising findings about who's most at risk, which is emerging, because it's not necessarily what you think. If you read some of the reports for the Commission, it seems that length of service is terribly important. With an, I'm re quoting now, with an increased likelihood of suicide in ex-serving men with less than one year of service, mm. when compared with men who served 10 years or more, medical discharge plays a significant role versus those discharged voluntarily, and non-commissioned officers two, twice the t at risk of commissioned officers. So, you know, this I don't think listeners will be used I, to hearing that. Exactly. Does it I don't surprise think we realise it. Yes, it did. I, I was completely surprised. I started this before I did a film and this book, uh, a documentary in this book. And the, the whole thing just opened in front of me as I learnt more and more and more. I thought, like most Australians, we do a pretty good job looking after our veterans. We've, you know, it's mm -hmm. part of our whole heritage and we, we've, we care about our veterans. But the systems are just not fit for purpose. They've been there for 100 years, added on to like topsy and no logic and now they're starting to really be found out and we've found, for example, if you're a veteran under 30, 
then you have twice yes, the suicide rate of, a, of the average Australian. We lost 41 killed in action in 20 years in Afghanistan. We've lost at least 1,400 who've taken their own lives in that same period. Yes, and yet what really struck me um, was that, and in fact, you know, the 325 certified suicides among people with at least one day of ADF service between 2001 and 15, Mm -hmm. 51% ex-serving at the time of their death, so it's this transition that is the critical thing. 28%, mind you, serving full-time, 21% in the reserves. Exactly. It just doesn't quite make sense. It seems to be, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people well, men and women join the forces because it gives them a very clear sense of purpose. And then if they leave and it's not their decision by, by mm. if, they're, if they're invalided out or they have medical problems or mental health issues, whatever it is, and then they're out, their sense of purpose and all the structures that were around them supporting them all disappear. And we don't have a good system. We're really good at creating our warriors, great soldiers. We have been always able to do that. We're really bad at turning our soldiers back into civilians. Yes. And there's the problem. They don't feel like they fit back into our community properly and there's no real structure. We're, we're trying to do it. They've brought in a joint transition authority and Nick Caldas, the Royal Commissioner, criticised the slowness of that operation in his interim report and said that it's really got to be something that's seriously looked at because all the bureaucracies and all the organisations we assume look after our veterans, like the Department of Veterans Affairs and like the RSL and things like that, have really failed to connect. And so, as a result, a lot of veterans are looking after themselves and they've set up their own ex-service organisation. 4,000 of them, 4,000 of them. <laughs> Can you believe that? And that's, that's a, when you think about it, there's a lot of logic in that. That's the sort of logic that a lot of our military, they go, this is hopeless, it's not working for it, I'll sort it out. So they start their own and, and yet... I mean, it, maybe that's not a bad thing, of it's, course. Well, it's highlighted the situation, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's thrown the spotlight back onto DVA, for example. And in the time I've been doing this research, they, they had 12,000 backlog of, of veterans seeking assistance when I first started doing this. That blew out to 60,000. It's, I think, around 40 the last time I was able to to catch up with it and they're trying to do something about it. But that's a massive failure and it's a very obvious one. But, you know, this is so tricky, isn't it? Like you, you have a full chapter on transition in the, in this, you know, your full book. Uh, and again, surprises for me anyway, it's not a lifetime career, the military anymore. The median length of service being seven years, seven years, I yeah. must say, <laughs> 10 years for sailors and air crew. So that whole idea of being totally absorbed within this big military culture and even, you know, augmented by Anzac Day, like maybe... <laughs> Somehow or other, we've got to reconfigure that. We do. I think that's true. Because, you see, when you think about it, there's a certain logic. All of our fighting, all this, almost all our fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, was by special forces. Well, they're the elite. They're like the top athletes. You know, they, they have to be at that level all the time to be able to go out there and, and perform. You can't keep doing that for 20 or 30 years. Mm. That's why, you know, those figures have come down so that people... And, and they... 
but they were sent again and again and again. Mm. Some of them had medical waivers, even though they had mental health issues, because they were so important and there was such a small pool of them. Well, you, you've got to expect that's going to end up with problems. And the traumas started to really have a big impact. There were two big statements from your interviewees that quite struck me among the many. The military trainer who always said to those he was teaching, what's your plan B? Yeah. Now, that was, again, very unromantic, you know, very exactly. pragmatic. Exactly what a decent trainer should say to anyone. And by contrast, the other poignant statement that you quoted from one man saying, I'm not enough of a veteran. Yes, that's a sad one. (laughs) Both quite revealing statements, I think. Again, possibly over-sentimentalising the, you know, this whole warrior notion. That's part of it. That's part of... Underlying a lot of our problems is the warrior notion, right? You got guys like that first one, Harry Moffat, a really a remarkable man, SAS, still works with the SAS. He's the guy that was talking about your plan B. Because as he said, you could walk out the back training and blow a hand off in training, let alone going away and fighting in a in a conflict. And so they are prepared for that in many, many ways. But the other people in our military often find, you know, that they're sidelined. And, and they're the ones that say to themselves, you know, I put my hand up to, and I put myself in harm's way for Australia, but I didn't feel like I was supported. Well, that's the little battler notion, isn't it? I yep. mean, I suppose, I mean, getting back, you know, in, in our last couple of minutes, getting back to the dilemmas for the big institutions, the, the, the ADF itself, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and even the RSL. Yep. Um, if the real people at risk are people who have only just been there, possibly, and have the, the army has said, no, you're not really fit. It's sort of like a social work um, role, isn't it? And they might say, the big institutions say, well, look, really, that that is far outside our remit. Are you saying they have to rethink all that? I think someone does. I, I don't argue that the, it, it's going to be very difficult for the military to look after the, the people who are fit to fight and at the same time look after the people who, who are, are not, not fit, fit to fight. fight. Right, so I think there's got to be a separation there. That seems logical. But we always thought it would be the Department of Veterans Affairs or an associated organisation with them. And certainly the RSL is the advocacy body. But if you look at the situation, there are something like 85,000 men and women who are qualified to be returned service members of the RSL, proper sub-branch members. And out of 85,000, maybe 1,500 have joined a sub-branch. There's this massive disconnect because the modern veteran doesn't see the RSL as representing them. And the RSL's got to do something about that. The average age of the RSL members is getting up towards 80. Mm. And I love that organisation. I think it's a wonderful, it's like the surf life-saving movement. It's a part of our fabric of our society. But if it doesn't do something and soon it's on the precipice. You know, if they don't hand that baton on to the new generation, they'll die on the vine. Well, maybe there. And, and women, of course, you also, you know, women of actually women's results are not as bad as the men's in these mental health issues, I must say. the women's... I think I think you find a lot of those women are, are, are already self-selecting. You know, they're, the, they're the, the toughest of the tough anyway that join into the military. And maybe that's that that shows mm. that up too. But they are great, always have been great adapters. Mm. So they're probably looking at a different way. The men are involved in that warrior thing. 
Well, Patrick, uh, thank you very much indeed for bringing our attention to this. There's a lot more in your book, but I just thought it was good to focus on on the you know that subset. Uh, congratulations. Thank you, Joe. Patrick Lindsay, the Home Front: The Never-Ending War Within Our Veterans. It's an Affirm Press publication, and he's also uh, founding chair of the Kokoda Track Foundation. Well, up next, our April edition of the Pick. Yes, the pick is back with great tips from people working in the fields of international relations, current affairs and history. They sift through all that's out there to give you some of the special gems to read, watch and listen to. This month, we're joined by Olivia Piri-Griffiths from the Centre for Information Resilience. That's a not non-for-profit. That's a non-profit that investigates war crimes and counters disinformation. And also Deborah Barros-Leal Farias, who is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at UNSW. She's helped us here on Saturday Extra before to understand the intense political madness of the last Brazilian election. And I hope she's recovered. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's, yeah, recovery is a is an ongoing process, it's an ongoing. but it's going. Yes. <laughs> it's a work in progress. Okay. Now, let's start with books because you never know, we might all have just a teach more time to read during the Anzac Day holiday. Olivia, what's your pick? Uh, Geraldine, firstly, thanks for having me. Uh, look, this book really arrested me. It's called The Naked Don't Fear the Water by a journalist called Mathieu Akins, who from memory is Canadian and also part Mongolian. Uh, he spent a long time in Kabul and in around 2016, this is a true story and this book is a non-fiction, he decided to uh, go on the refugee trail from Afghanistan to Europe uh, with his friend and Afghan national Omar. So he ditches his passport and goes on this trip to see what the experience of a refugee is actually like. And it's completely visceral, it's terrifying, it's joyful, it's, it just knocked me over. And, I mean, um, he really does walk in the shoes of his friend Omar yeah. and he doesn't bail out as a journalist or travel writer might do and this is quite an interesting part of the book, isn't it? Mm. Do they make it to Europe? Oh, should I give that away? <laughs> I think you should Spoiler go. alert. Yeah. Look, they, they do, um, but not without a lot of challenge. And, uh, look, the book isn't left with a happy ending necessarily, but it's um, it certainly makes you think. Uh, look, I must say, when I was reading the sort of pricey and everything, that business of having a passport that you can mm. actually access was very powerful. I must say, I've never thought of it quite like that. Mm. Uh, so uh, where did he put this passport? Where, where did he deposit it, as it were? I think from memory he leaves it with some friends um, who he's certainly not, uh, who he doesn't have access to when he's on this trip. Gee, that's brave. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, it's a really... Not as hard as Omer's job, but anyway. No, exactly. And, you know, people like Andrew Quilty have spoken about that sort of conflict before of being so connected to a place, but then also realising that you have the privilege to be able to just leave when you want. And so Mattia Akins, this journalist, really tries to change that position so he's in the same situation as his friend Omar. And Deb, what are you suggesting for a good read? Well, this one is an, is an older book. I mean, it's from 2008 and it's a book called The Box. And as weird as it sounds, it's a book that tells the story of the container. 
And it's actually really fascinating, <laughs> which, you know, I've, I've told this to students and sometimes they, they, you know, they don't really trust me. Like, how can a book about a story of the container? The shipping container, you mean? <laughs> the shipping container, right? Why would anybody want to, you know, read that unless you're like a super nerd in this area? But what I find fascinating is because the shipping container is something that it's so ubiquitous now. It's so normal that you see it and that's how transport is made. But if you think of it, you know, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, you still didn't have this as the main way of transporting things. You still needed harbors like we did, you know, millennia and millennia where you had human bodies carrying sacks of things and, you know, it's old school, old school ways of transporting stuff. Wow. And essentially there's this whole discussion first about, you know, many people saying, yeah, a container would be a good idea. But then all the infighting that goes with, well, what is its shape? What should be the standard that everybody's using? And more importantly, it goes into all the impact that it's had. So if you think, for example, of Darling Harbor or Fisherman's Wharf in um, in San Francisco or so many piers like in uh Manhattan and so many other places that have had to rethink their existence because they're no longer used traditionally for for, mm. for shipping, which was their first thing. And so it really opens up about how what seems like a very dull technical innovation, you know, sure, shipping com uh, containers, but it shows how so many countries and so many different places have really exploded in their importance, um, how in some areas like cities or certain regions have actually disappeared or have had to be reinvented. So how mm -hmm. things change, right? You don't need people living close to the harbor mm -hmm. or making things next to the harbor. You can have them kilometers and kilometers away as long as the container yeah. can be put on a train, can be put on a lorry and taken to where it has to be. So yeah. I'm just going to say, because yeah. it's the box, colon, how the shipping container made the world smaller and the world economy bigger. It's by Mark Levinson. Now I want to move to the world of audio. And Olivia, you're interested in how how we need to preserve our capacity to disagree with one another in a civil way and how there's a tendency now to dismiss opponents and people with different views and treat them with contempt, and that's an important word. What's got you thinking more deeply about this? Well, Geraldine, I was just about to disagree with you and say, no, that's you've got it all wrong. That's not what I'm interested in at all. Um, no, but you're quite right. Uh, I went to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the towards the end of last year and Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens were doing a piece for the Minefield Live uh, on their quarterly essay for the monthly or for the quarterly essay on how contempt is corroding democracy. And it was a, a follow-on from a piece that Waleed wrote about uh, woke politics and cancel culture and how this sort of polarised aggression between in society is only driving us further and further away from the sort of social, what's the best way to describe it? Well, the cohesion. I mean, it's, Exactly. Uh, it's a project that we're all here and, creating together. And the, the loss of the ability to argue, you know, mm. this is, you know, Robert Mann, the Melbourne thinker, has been talking about this for ages. The ability to argue, it doesn't mean dispute. Mm. It, it means go back and forth and rebut, do it, you know, even if you're challenged. That seems, Ooh, that's that, what they were getting at. And that's of. right. And that's, if you think about it, that's the whole point of a democracy, right? If we don't have that function within it, then we don't have one at all. Yes. Social capital, that was sort of a huge part of um, 
uh, Robert Putnam's arguments mm. in the early 2010s, that that was called bridging social capital, that you could really make um, de- have a decent discussion with someone with whom you totally disagreed. And then there was bonding capital, which was more on a personal basis. You know, his contention was that it was that broader bridging capital mm. that was actually critical to democracy. I'm going to need to read that. But yeah, I think um, it's another thing that it sort of raises is our, our need for curiosity that I think we're potentially losing grip of. Now, Deb, you've got two listening suggestions that are not terribly far from this in a way. Yeah, no, I mean, one of them, it's really, it's it's roughly around the same topic. I mean, it is a bit of a self from, self-promotion because the suggestion is um, a podcast, a series of podcasts on defending democracy that have been made by Malcolm Turnbull. And I had the opportunity, I was invited to talk about Brazil and talk about, there was one of the episodes where I'm talking about um, Brazilian politics and talking, um, you know, especially about the invasion that happened inside our capital, let's say, on January 8th, and um, talking about fake news and comparing a little bit Brazil and Australia in elections. And so he interviews, um, I think it's six episodes, and in each one it's interviewing people from different places and, yeah, talking about you know, how can we defend democracy? So that's the nerd one. And the other one is the band that, unfortunately, I discovered them, like I discovered them only one month after they had played in Sydney, um, which is uh, Krugenbin. And I'm probably also butchering their name. They're a band from Texas. And it's kind of neo, neo-soul, neo-jazz. I don't know how you classify mm. it, but it's just so good. Like I've mm. been obsessed with them for the past two months. Well, let's have a listen. And that's, uh, I would say it's Kruangbin, K-H-R-U-A-N-G-B-I-N. Now, of course, people who are more up to date with these would, would <laughs> probably got another view. But it is very, it's very soothing, isn't it, Deb? Yeah, it, it feels like the kind of music that you want to be, you know, you, you find yourself maybe in an open space. And it, they, they have a lot of, um, like, instrumental songs. And all of them, you just feel like, I want to sit and just look at people and see the sunset while mm. I'm, I'm listening to this. You know, it, it's mm. one of those musics that kind of takes you into a different atmosphere. I it's, love that song really as well. I love that song, Deb. I was so glad you... And, and I'm going to toss in uh, Alexis French. If you're in, you want that mood um, to just soothe yourself, an exquisite, exquisite piano playing, very gentle, um, an African-American man from, uh, I think, um, New Orleans, just fantastic. Just before we leave, what was the, the best example from the Turnbull podcast series, Defending Democracy, which, if you could tell us, Deb, who impressed you most in terms of reflecting their society that was really dealing with cohesion best? 
Um, I think it's it's um, Kissinger. So he's one. He's a, a representative in the U.S. Congress, and he's the one who's on the January 6th commission. And he's someone that I think really encapsulates this struggle that in the U.S. the Republican Party is is going through. That you know it goes back to that conversation about how do you move on and you know. What are the things that you can agree to disagree? But at the same time, there are some things that you can say, no, we can't agree to disagree that it was a fair election and that Trump lost, yeah. mm. like he lost. Um, so it, it, it also shows, I think, this challenge of how do you deal with um, fake news and at what point do mere opinions become actually fake news that are dangerous well, for society? Well, that, that was what the Dominion lawyer said, wasn't it? One yes. of the best things when yes. he came out of that settlement uh, announcement earlier this week. You know, we have to mm. agree on certain facts, <laughs> otherwise we won't. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. Okay. Finally to the screen, and we might stay with you, Deb, and you've nominated a film that I also think is quite underrated, actually, Contagion by Steven Soderbergh. Now, why is this worth re-watching? Yes. So this movie came out in 2013. And this movie is really, um, it, it's about basically a world undergoing a, a pandemic, like a viral pandemic, which obviously we have witnessed that in firsthand. But what's interesting is that I began to use that movie in classes that I was teaching when I came here to Australia, uh, teaching global politics and global governance. And so in 2019, I had students watch that movie because it was a way of getting, okay, you know, when you watch this movie, who are the big actors? Um, what would need to be involved if we had? But it was still very fictional. And then I had students in February 2020, when the course began, I had them watching again. And it was already very eerie because we were, you know, mid-February 2020, we were like, okay, some of this is already happening. Mm. And since 2020, it's been fascinating for students because most of them, like my students now, um, you know, have been born, some of them like in the, you know, early 2000s. So they they were barely, you know, they, they probably haven't seen it. But it's been a really interesting movie now to rewatch. Lots of good compare. questions, as I recall. Sorry, there were lots of yes. very well scripted questions about the ethics of things and the Exactly. Uh, doing things while your judgment is just completely clouded by um, quietly controlled panic. That was what I remember from it. Yeah, because now we can really compare mm. um, with, you know, our own experiences and to think, hey, you know, in the movie, they thought this part was going to be so much easier. This had nothing to do with what actually happened in real life. And even to think that if somebody in the movie had said, well, the president of the United States is going to be recommending people to basically drink bleach. Mm. You know, he would have said, oh, come on, people in Hollywood are just completely making things up. This is absolutely unreal. It would never happen. So it also, in some ways, you know, I think the fiction was a lot more restrained yep. in thinking that people would behave rationally. Okay. And now finally, Olivia, you have warned us you're not a big watcher of television. <laughs> so you're going with a British comedy classic that yes. I adore uh, in the thick of it with Peter Capaldi as the foul-mouthed press advisor to politician Nicola Murray. Why have you raided the archives? I just look. That's all I do, Geraldine. Raid I love raiding an archive. <laughs> um, I just love this show so much. I watch it on repeat often. It's It just brings forward the absurdity of this whole democratic project. Whilst I love it, there are also some things to laugh at as well. And, yeah, if if you enjoy a loudmouth, loudmouthed Scottish 
tyrant who's belligerently yelling at inept politicians, then it's probably a good watch for you. And Yeah, and of course, you know, um, it was probably modelled, people say, on Alistair Campbell. And of course, his podcast with Rory Stewart, yes. um, uh, all about um, the, the rest is politics, is now the most listened to podcast in the UK. That's wow. how extraordinary <laughs> he's converted wow. himself. And look, I know you don't want to self-promote, so I'll do it for you. The Centre for Information Resilience that uh, you now um, uh, work for has an incredible interactive project called Eyes on Russia. Now, what's that? So, look, the Centre for Information Resilience uses open source intelligence capabilities or open source information gathering, um, which is basically just really high-tech Googling, uh, to track military movements and human rights incursions in Russia. Uh, we, do it, we do it in Afghanistan and Myanmar and elsewhere as well, but the Eyes on Russia project started at the beginning of the war and is now, I think, one of the um, biggest troves of data on all of the military movements and and conflict What's that has gone on. What's happening in Bakhmut and everything? Are you, yep. Yeah. All of that all ghastly of that. stuff yeah. that was coming it's out this week. On. I could hardly read it. And where can we access it if we want to? Eyesonrussia.org. Eyesonrussia.org. Well, look, <laughs> thank you both very much indeed. And um, we'll, we will access various uh, suggestions. So thank you, Olivia Perry-Griffiths and Deborah Burras-Leal-Farias. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you thank so much. Thank you. There they are. <laughs> The people you were listening to. Uh, And it was great to hear um, their various picks. And I might add, several people have said, what was that music? It's Texas Sun by Karangban and Leon Bridges, if you care to uh, check that out. And do go to the Saturday Extra website and we'll have a list of their picks. Now, outbreaks of the crown of thorns starfish have been plaguing Australia's northern reefs for about four decades. These starfish can have more than 20 arms with hundreds of toxin-tipped thorns and their main source of food is coral. When they're in plague proportions, the effects are just devastating. But before the crown of thorns became coral-munching predators, they start life as very small juveniles with less, less toxicity. And now new research funded by the Great Barrier Reef Foundation has found that the humble red decorator crab can eat up to five juvenile starfish a day. And there's hope that this crab could be part of a biological solution to limit the damage of starfish outbreaks. One of the researchers is Dr Kenny Wolfe from the University University of Queensland's School of Biological Sciences. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Jodine. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, t- this is an interesting story because it's it's both terribly exciting and also sort of little bits of warning in there as well. What do these crabs look like? Um, yeah, good question. They're decorator crabs, as you said earlier. So that means that much like the Christmas tree, they're decorating themselves with all different organisms from the ecosystem. So they put different sponges uh, and seagrasses and macroalgae on their backs uh, to camouflage, but also as a little snack for later sometimes. And could you walk us through the crown of thorns life cycle, please, and why it's important uh, to to get them while, they, while they're young and why they, the crabs might play a role here? Definitely. This is a, a feature of a lot of invertebrates in our oceans. Um, we focus a lot on the crown of thorns adults because they're the ones having the biggest impact on the reef as really large. They get bigger than a dinner plate um, and, as you said earlier, are very spiky um, and they don't have many predators. So 
when we um, have the juveniles which occupy different spaces in the habitat and they're actually herbivores so they're eating algae in those early stages of their life before they grow up to the size of about your thumbnail and then they switch to a coral diet and I guess like a protein bulker in the gym will grow very quickly and then they can wreak havoc but um, targeting them when they're small in this herbivorous life stage is therefore really critical to kind of tackling their their populations before they're an issue. Uh, I didn't realise they started off so small. Um, now, this research builds on your own research into coral rubble. That's also pertinent here, isn't it? Could you explain what that is and why it matters? Yeah, so I've been working on coral rubble ecosystems for quite a few years now. And I guess I can liken this to when a building falls down in a city, all the bricks will turn to rubble. And that happens on a coral reef. So when the coral dies and breaks down, this is a natural process, but also accelerated by some of the activities um, that humans are having on the reef. Um, But the coral will turn into these rubble bed ecosystems. And What's great for me as an invertebrate biologist is that all the tiny little critters love to hide in this space. It's much like in The Lion King when they turn over the log in the woods and it's slimy yet satisfying. They get all these delicious bugs and snacks coming out of the the logs. That's the same ecosystem um, that coral rubble provides for invertebrates in our oceans. So, yeah, there's a whole suite of animals that live there. Now, you tested over 100 different species to find a natural crown of thorns starfish predator. Um, How long did that take you? Uh, We've definitely spent lots of months out there in the field, Um, mostly at Heron Island. We've we've focused our research um, to one site to begin asking these questions and hope to expand in future. but yeah, we've we spent lots of hours diving on the reef, um, going through this dead rubble ecosystem, trying to find different crabs and worms and snails that could be potential predators of the the smallest uh, juvenile stages of crown of thorns because they also um, occupy this rubble habitat. So the juvenile uh-huh. crown of thorn starfish live alongside these these rubble dwellers. So this was a, a quite a significant breakthrough and um, the research is still in its preliminary stage, I know. Is, are there any risks? I mean, I'm naturally thinking of, you know, the way we, we find these alleged, result, you know, breakthroughs, but it's too much for the, for the delicate ecosystem. Uh, are, there, are there risks sort of relying on these predator crabs? Um, in terms of um, applying this knowledge, do you mean? Yes, yes. I mean, could they yeah. could they go feral themselves, dare I put it like that? <laughs> yeah, I guess um, calling from Queensland myself, um, in terms, I guess this is where people take our finding immediately is this kind of cane toad idea Indeed. where maybe we could release them <laughs> in the environment and they'll eat all of the crown of thorn starfish and our reef will be okay. Um, but I think we've learned from the cane toad that we have to have a really educated understanding of the environment and the way that these crabs operate. And at the moment, there's very little information on these species that we've found as key predators at this juvenile stage. So um, for the moment, we're focusing on understanding their biology and their distribution on the reef before we think about any kind of uh, applied biocontrol. I see. So they, they're they small and I think you also don't want people looking for them. That's part of the thing. So, you know, the risk is that people say, oh, we'll go and find them. We'll add to our own, we'll do our own little bit of vigilante work. 
Yeah, um, there's definitely room for citizens and the public to, to keep an eye out for these crabs if they look at our, our work and become familiar with these species. Um, there's a lot of platforms online like the Atlas of Living Australia where people can upload their photos and observations of species on the reef. But as I said earlier, this rubble habitat um, is is very cryptic and to find these species you do have to kind of search through the habitat so i don't advocate for anyone to be going out there and and actively searching but there's definitely observations online that i've uh, kind of trudged through that do exist for these species so would the public you, can definitely keep their eyes open how so realistic assessment then um how long might it take you to fully research these predator crabs before they could start to be i mean do you really believe they could be a breakthrough um, it's been really, really exciting uh, working with these uh, crabs in the lab. And we did kind of very simple Tupperware experiments, I guess, with a crab and a starfish just to see if they did eat them. And then for successful predators, we put them in more complex uh, experiments that eventually was mimicking the rubble ecosystem itself with the rubble and all of the other animals that would be interacting. And the crabs were still able to locate and consume high numbers of the starfish. So it gives us, uh, I guess, a lot of hope for their ability to do this in nature as well. Uh, and any uh, any other sort of co- coming out of this rubble, while I've got you, any other possible uh, developments that uh, even might be on the horizon? Um, for us, it's conducting, as I said earlier, this, this research has been focused on uh, Heron Island, which is on the Southern Great Barrier Reef and doesn't really have a big history of crown-of-thorn starfish outbreaks. And that's because on the Great Barrier Reef, there's hot spots that seem to occur for outbreaks. Some reefs seem to be more susceptible to having high numbers of the starfish and a lot of those reefs are up north, um, out of the Cairns region. And so our next step is to take all of this knowledge and do our surveys up north to see if maybe the, the distribution and numbers of crabs can help explain that. And using that information, we can then start to target where reefs may or may not be susceptible. And uh, again, you know, the crown of thorns itself is, is, a, is a, nat- a species native to here and in small numbers is actually good for the reef. It's when these outbreaks occur, isn't it, that, that the problem is, uh, arises? Yeah, definitely. And that's people don't often realise that they are a native species. Uh, so the cane toads, for example, are introduced to as a biocontrol, but crown of thorns exist naturally on our reefs and in low numbers, um, through their feeding ecology, they can actually enhance biodiversity of coral by favouring the weedy, fast-growing corals and letting the slower other corals to, to come through the system. So in low numbers, they're very good, but in, in their outbreak uh, densities, that's when it's a bit like locusts through a farmer's crop. All right. Well, look, um, keep going. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, And that was Dr. Kenny Wolfe, who has been working uh, on ways to control the crown of thorns starfish outbreaks. Now, just a very quick mention of rear vision. They're also going to be, uh, they're looking at household waste this weekend. Do we dump or do we recycle? In Australia, we haven't developed a modern recycling industry and we're still relying on dumping waste into landfill, but other nations do recycle successfully. Germany, South Korea to name just two. How do they succeed where we have failed? And just to mention that sad story about the uh, Russian Vladimir Karamurza, the leading dissident, he was sentenced for 22, 25 years in prison. We discovered it last week for his public criticism. 
of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.